Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Walhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by Patrick Ishmael, Susan Pendergrass, and Jacob Puckett from Show Me Institute. Susan, last week we talked about Mo Desi's application for some funds from the American Rescue Plan. I think you have an update for us. Yeah, it's, I guess, an update because it's 55 pages and I'm just reading it more closely. But, you know, it occurred to me that I, I was just curious, like, how many times their application mentioned the word parent, which is three. And the number of time it mentions teachers and educators, which is 150. And I noticed that they have two to three top priorities they had to outline. And they are, um, you know, uh, learning loss, educator workforce, and broadband, basically. And I didn't say anything uh, in there specifically about families and parents. And so there's a, there's a line in there that says the most important factor in the education of, of a child is a teacher, like research agrees. I love when people say research agrees or research finds that or research says so research says that the most important thing in a child's education is the teacher and then which i think is true uh so they want to have more of them that the the declining trend in um, college students going into education as a major the declining trend that was exacerbated of teachers retiring it was exacerbated during covid so we have this apparent educator or teacher workforce problem they cite this study that is just ironic to me because it's pretty well known in tennessee a lot of work on teachers and teacher quality was done in tennessee by a particular guy who worked at the department of agriculture and was a statistician and he developed some pretty well some very complex uh experimental models to figuring out like what does a teacher contribute in a classroom he did the best known study on teacher-student ratios reducing them and the impact on achievement but he did this other thing where in a very complicated statistical method he tracked the performance of each teacher by looking at uh, student test scores when they got them in the fall and student test scores when they left them in the spring and then um, using again statistical methods to just to find the highly effective teachers, the okay effective teachers, and the ineffective teachers. And then he tracked students for multiple years and he, you know, paid attention to whether they went highly effective, highly effective, highly effective, highly effective, mm, sort of effective, highly effective, and all these different permutations of highly effective versus not. And sure enough, it is true that if a student for three years in a row happens to have a highly effective teacher, that teacher has a significant impact on their academic outcome forever. And and it's complicated, but step one is that teachers have to be willing to subject themselves to these evaluations, right? And they have to be rated, and they have to have their scores out there known. They have to, everyone has to know, like, out of the third grade teachers, which one got the most growth out of their students. And so a lot of teachers are very against it. Missouri has nothing of the kind. Missouri is not in favor of uh, teacher rating systems or teacher performance pay. So what they say in this American Rescue Plan, just to re- recap, $2 billion that will be coming into the state, what they say we need to focus on is growing the workforce, and they say nothing at all about the quality of the workforce. So it's just get more bodies in, which we know doesn't work. That's also been tried and researched, mostly in California. But this is what we're still talking about. And the thing that bothers me is with all of the... Uh, all of what we know about what has happened to children in the last year and a half and their educations, they still want to spend most of the money on the teachers in the classroom, the adults in the room, and not the children in the room. So I'm going to keep talking about um, passing some of it out to parents and to children and getting them tutoring and getting them support outside their assigned public schools and outside their uh, school classroom and doing whatever we need to do 
Manhattan Project style to get kids back to where they need to be. And it's just really uh, continuing to be disappointing to me that we want to dump all that money back into business as usual. Are you aware of any collective effort to make sure that we know what happens to this three something billion dollars that is flowing into Missouri for for education? I'm not aware. I mean, they put together a committee on learning loss and they've done a lot of task force task forces and PowerPoints. And I'm not I think a lot of the I've said this before, the school districts seem to be paralyzed about what to do with the money. Um, I do think that the current administration in Washington is more friendly to teachers and teacher unions. So they are directing a lot of the information. And so this last round, the last $2 billion, came with specific instructions of feel free to spend it on teachers, spend it on teacher salaries, bonuses, feel free to spend it on teachers. And um, I do think we're going to see that influence under this presidential administration for quite some time. The teachers unions have a very active voice. And there's nothing I fully support teachers. I'm in favor of teachers. I think teachers, like all of us, whoever get a performance review, should get a performance review. And I think that having taught in college and having to pass out performance reviews to the people I taught, which is a little uncomfortable, you know, too bad. Like, you still have to get performance reviews. And I do think that until we get to the point where we pay better teachers more and not good teachers are encouraged to leave the profession, we're not going to have this teachers the most important uh, component of education happening in Missouri if we just think it's bodies in the classroom. Patrick, I want to bring you in here. Moving away from education and just into local governments, state governments, they're also getting windfalls of hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. And that's another area where we've heard for years and years and years that whether it's community services, um, public safety, whatever, is just give us more money and we'll fix the problem. Do you think that in real time over the next few years, we're going to see that argument fall apart as well and that people are going to have to start acknowledging that maybe some of these issues of governance are not just a funding problem and might be a leadership problem? I I certainly hope so. And we've talked about um, publishing of checkbooks for a long, long time, making sure that what is being spent is uh, you know, being honestly shared with the public. And I think once you start doing that, once you have consistent oversight over how local governments, how local school districts, how cities, how counties are spending their money and something close to real time, once that starts happening, I think it'll be a lot harder uh, for legislators or, or local political officials to say, you know what, we do need more money when the public can see, well, you're overspending in this, um, maybe you should uh, tighten your belt. And that's before we start talking about, you know, the long-term consequences from COVID. You know, one one thing that was pretty clear was that while uh, private companies were being shut down, you know, family businesses, government stayed the same size. The government, generally speaking, didn't really get smaller. In fact, a lot of times they end up getting more revenue than they've ever had before and and still providing fewer services. And I think for a lot of people, that was kind of an awakening for them because if the government is staying the same size and the rest of you know your community is forced to close uh, and they're still receiving revenue and they're not you know tightening their belt like you're having to, um, I think it does raise questions. So absolutely, I think that uh, over time, I think the public is getting more and more engaged with local government in particular, uh, being uh, applying a lot more scrutiny. 
uh, to what those governments are spending money on and how they're uh, assigning their priorities. And I think that's terribly important. The, the real key, though, is providing them with resources to be able to do that and making sure that, you know, if you're a government and you can take people's money through force, which is what taxation is, uh, requiring that that uh, spending be published uh, almost nearly contemporaneously, if possible, uh, so that the public can see it. I think that's really important to getting a handle on government and kind of uh, uh, undermining this notion that, uh, government just needs more money to provide better services. You know what, they, they <laughs> received about the same amount of money during the COVID pandemic as they did before and provided fewer services. Uh, I think the public is starting to catch on. All right, Patrick, Governor Parson yesterday, he signed a COVID liability bill. What does that do? Yeah, so this is an issue that uh, the governor has talked about for a while. In fact, he called a special session back in November on this. Uh, and he wanted essentially three things and he wanted them to be enacted immediately. What he wanted was uh, for a liability protection for people who uh, have uh, customers come to their premises uh, so that uh, they can still interact and, and provide services and not be worried about being sued for COVID unnecessarily. Uh, he wanted product uh, liability protection uh, and he wanted uh, protections for healthcare workers as well. And uh, he wanted an emergency clause that would make, as soon as the bill was passed and as soon as he signed it, it became law. Um, that ended up not happening last year, uh, unfortunately. And I think that uh, that uh, was a real disappointment for a, a lot of businesses as well, because it kept them exposed to potential lawsuits uh, going forward. So you fast forward to January and, and the governor says, well, why don't we just wait until January and get this taken care of? January, they start talking about this again, uh, and they ended up passing SB 51, uh, which deals in all of these issues. And I think generally speaking, the language is pretty good. Um, if you're talking about uh, premises liability, you're talking about you know the owner or the individual presiding over the premises has to engage in reckless or willful misconduct. Uh, they basically have to, in some way, negligently expose you to COVID to, to <laughs> accrue some they have to like cough on you or what do they have to do to be <laughs> they if if well so without providing legal advice because that's not my intent here but sure. my read of it is and this all these things would have to be litigated in court to really define the the contours of it but in a, in a negligence kind of context uh maybe they knew that they were sick mm. uh and they got <laughs> someone sick not not on purpose but uh they expose them to something that they should have known they shouldn't have been exposing them to. I think that's the kind of context that you're talking about there. Uh, it also included protections for people who produce like masks um, uh, in, in an emergency context where they didn't uh, previously produce masks. Maybe they produced clothes and instead they created masks instead, providing protections in case there was some claim that they their mask wasn't working well enough. Um, and again, uh, protection for healthcare workers, which I think makes total sense. So it, it got signed uh, yesterday, I believe, and um, it's it's good. But one lingering concern is that it, this particular bill didn't include an emergency clause, which means that this bill doesn't even go into effect until August 28th. And when you listen to the debate on the floor of the House in the very last day of the session, because I think it was passed in the very last day, a lot of the concern was, you know, why couldn't we have gotten this bill done earlier? Why is are we waiting till the very last minute to, to complete this legislation? And the answer is, is an answer that we've talked about before. I mean, the, the Senate itself 
was very slow to produce this legislation. And there was always the threat of a uh, filibuster, which would have made it a, a, a distinct possibility that we could have gone through the entire session and not had a bill. And, and so this bill came out of the Senate. Um, it uh, didn't really receive any changes from the House. And if it had received any changes, it wouldn't have been able to pass in that last day. And so this is a, a good thing, I think, for Missourians, a good thing for folks who uh, were providing services or providing um, you know, masks or, or what have you during the pandemic to give them some level of protection uh, going forward if we have uh, a, you know, a, a, the Delta variant becomes a real issue uh, or uh, if someone finds out later on that they think that they got COVID at someone's business, um, this provides some protections, but it, it's part of a larger story with the legislature where it, it has a very limited set of priorities in some cases, and it can't even get those done in an effective and, and uh, you know, appropriately deliberative way such that this bill was left to the last day. It's probably one of the most important bills to get done, uh, and yet it was uh, almost not passed at all. So. It, 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 it looks like good legislation to me. It's unfortunate that it didn't receive a little bit more discussion and the House can contribute its uh, uh, amendments to it, if you will. Um, but uh, it is important and uh, it's good that Missouri got it done before the session ended. All right. So what else is on the governor's desk that you guys are that you guys are keeping an eye on? I know we have um, HB 349 that hasn't been signed yet. Uh, the gas tax bills, but that there's a lot going on with that. Jacob, is there anything that's sitting on the governor's desk that uh, that you're still keeping an eye on? Well, Senate Bill 262 is is the gas tax. That's the main thing that I'm looking for. It, for the first time in 25 or so years, both chambers of the legislature legislature passed uh, a gas tax bill. So this is the first time one of our governors has been able to have the opportunity to sign one of these in the entirety of my lifetime, at least. Uh, but there's also significant questions of whether or not this falls in line with Missouri's constitution. Does it raise too much money without going to a public vote uh, for, for it not to be able to get through? Okay. And, and our next topic, I, I want to return to the gas tax bill. But Susan, what are you, what are you looking at on the governor's desk? Uh, HB 349 which is the uh, education scholarship account bill, which would be the first time that Missourians have any access to private school choice or school choice programs, school choice scholarships. And um, I think the window is closing for the governor to sign it or veto it, in which case it will become law. But I would really love to see uh, a signing ceremony while the, uh, for the governor to do something for the children of Missouri. Is this just pure politicking at this point? The I politics after like the politics? That- it feels like it. So there was a follow-up bill. HB 349 um, caps the total uh, contributions to the scholarships accounts at $50 million for people and businesses across the state. There was a follow-on bill that lowered that cap to $25 million. So it's a chance that the governor will so- sign the follow-on bill that has the reduction in the cap of $25 million to sort of look like he's halfway for it but wants to keep the dollar amount low uh, and that to me feels very political why not just sign it i mean anyone else have any thoughts i mean why not just sign it if it's good for kids then sign it but i do think that there is still 
this uh, wall of resistance built by teachers unions, association of school boards, and association of superintendents who want nothing to do with this. And they have been out on Facebook trying to get teachers to reach out to the governor to veto it. So there's a, a campaign against it. And um, if he's listening to that at all, maybe that will uh, influence him to to just let it slide through and become law without him signing it. But I think it's a great opportunity for him to stand up for families and students in Missouri. So we'll see. Our final topic for today. So there is a national conversation happening about infrastructure. And, Hmm. you know, part of that conversation is what you define as infrastructure and what's hard infrastructure and soft infrastructure. But for our purposes, we're talking about roads. We're talking about roads and bridges. And Jacob, you published a paper two weeks ago um, about user fees and how they can help pay for Missouri's infrastructure. If you could just put the different user fees out on the table for people who may not be familiar, you got gas taxes and what else? So you have the state gas tax and the federal gas tax. That's right now 17 cents a gallon for Missouri and 18 cents a gallon for gasoline federal and 24 cents a gallon for diesel fuel. Uh, so every, if you drive on any road in Missouri and you buy gas, you're going to pay that. You also pay license and registration fees uh, when, when you get your car registered. Those go towards road maintenance. You also pay a special sales tax on your vehicle. Uh, about a little over 3% of that sales tax goes towards road maintenance. So those are the big four user fees that anyone who drives in Missouri is going to end up paying. And your paper focuses on? hopefully a new user fee. Uh, so the top line and the bottom line is MoDOT needs more, runny, more money to repair roads and bridges in Missouri and expand for the future. And tolling is a fair way of doing it. So that's, that's the new user fee that I think we should be considering. And look, some of our major roads in Missouri uh, are nearing the end of their lifetime. I-70 was built about 60 years ago with an expected lifetime of 50 years. So you can do the math on that. I-44 and I-55, they're not quite at the same point as I-70, but they're getting close. And the longer we keep kicking this can down the road, the less likely we are to have a road to kick that can on (laughs) 10, 15 years down the road. So we're driving on borrowed time. And roads are important uh, not just for getting me from my house to Ted Drew's or getting anyone from where they want to go, but they're also important economically. Uh, statewide, there are over 83,000 people employed in the trucking industry and the warehouse industry in Missouri. It's a lot of people. Um, over $700 billion each year, as of 10 years ago, travels on uh, Missouri's roads each year. $700 billion worth of products. And it's expected to go up to $1.2 trillion each year by the time we hit 2030. So there's clearly... Uh, a lot of economic and employment value in keeping these roads in good condition. And we always talk about how much it would cost to repair the roads. That's, that's what we're arguing about with how much we should raise the gas tax or what toll rates should be. But we should also keep in mind that there's a cost to not repairing the roads as well. And, you know, we always say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And that really is the case with roads. Several studies have found that Roughly for every $1 spent to keep a good road in good condition, it saves 4 to $5 um, of spending to rehab a bad road back to good condition. So you're gonna, you might pay now 
you might avoid paying later, but if you do that, you're ultimately going to end up paying more money later when you could have just stayed on top of this from the beginning and kept the good roads in good condition. Does Missouri have a relatively high amount of uh, state roads, roads that are, that are uh, maintenanced by the state as opposed to local municipalities? Yes. So MoDOT, a number of years ago, uh, decided that they were going to start taking care of a number of roads that in most other situations in other states would be under the, the jurisdiction of counties and cities. So MoDOT has roughly 34,000 miles of roads in their state highway network, which is the seventh highest total nationwide. So even though we're, we're, we're not the seventh biggest state, not the seventh most populous, et cetera, our state transportation department has the seventh largest responsibility proportionally for the roads they have to take care of. And is there a way to return some of that maintenance burden to some of those counties, cities, so that MoDOT isn't maybe spread so thin and we can focus on some of the, the bigger infrastructure projects that um, maybe MoDOT should prioritize? There is. Uh, I haven't seen any discussion of it e- either this year or in the past several years. Um, they could do it. I, I don't know who has the interest or appetite in doing it. And the federal money, we were talking about all the, these billions of dollars that are flowing into the state. Is there any way to use some of that for immediate, for urgent projects? So most of, so the largest single budget item of MoDOT's budget is federal money from federal fuel taxes. And we actually get more money from the federal government than Missourians pay in federal fuel taxes. So I I would have to look specifically at what the requirements are for the incoming actual infrastructure money into Missouri if if that ends up coming. I mean, the president right now is talking a lot about the next stimulus plan being infrastructure, right? Am I I right? Like, it didn't Mm -hmm. pass yet, but I suspect that we're going to have a huge influx of money dedicated to however you define infrastructure. So could we use... You know, wouldn't it be smart to use some of that on our roads? It would be, yeah. Modon estimates that it would take between two to four billion dollars just to rebuild I seventy. Rebuild. Rebuild, yeah. Oh my! Well, I don't want to be there when it happens. It's it's past its lifespan, so you can't just put a new surface wow. on it. You have to rebuild it. Um, but but that's the situation that we're in, and yeah, no matter how much uh, money we get for infrastructure from the federal government we should be identifying some high-profile projects uh, to put this money towards. How much did the gas tax go up in this legislative session? So if it's signed by the governor yeah, yeah. and if it's deemed constitutional, it would go up to 29.5 cents per gallon. From 17? From 17, yeah. But That's that would be over five years, so oh, 2.5 okay. cents every five years. Mm. And that would still be either on par or even lower than some of the states right next to us. So it's it's not like we would be way ahead of everyone else with a really high gas tax if this goes all the way through. Yeah. All right. Well, it's showmeinstitute.org. Everything and more that you wanted to know about tolling, <laughs> go check out uh, Jacob's new paper. All right, Susan, what are you looking forward to in the next week? Well, as we discussed, I time the clock is ticking on the governor signing HB three forty nine. So we'll be uh, looking for that. And then more information, you know, I'd let, I would love, I'd be happily surprised if the 2021 school test scores were released. I don't think they will be because districts had until June 15th to get kids into the building to take them. But I'm still going to be very curious to see what those look like whenever they get released. Patrick? 
Yeah, so we're continuing the curriculum uh, project. Um, I have a blog post that will probably be going up in the next day or two that talks about uh, the NEA, the National Education Association, endorsing critical race theory. Uh, but, uh, you know, on a more day-to-day -day basis, you know, I'm going to continue collecting records from across the state. I think the most interesting one so far, and it'll, it'll be mentioned in this blog, is uh, the Springfield Public Schools want almost $2,000 uh, records that we've requested from them. And so this is consistent with what we've seen across the state in other areas, whether it's cities or counties, where you have, in this case, we've had hundreds of districts respond and, and just tell us or provide us with records at no cost. And every once in a while, you find a, a local government or a school district that goes a different direction and tries to make it very difficult. In this case, Springfield is taking the cake uh, and uh, hopefully they will uh, relent and, and provide uh, the records for what they're teaching kids in that district. Uh, we'll find out in the next few weeks. Patrick, do they have to itemize that total? Um, and I ask because of the legislation that was signed last week about attorney's fees. So is there any way to know if that $2,000 includes any attorney's fees? Yeah, uh, we, we actually followed up with them shortly after um, that uh, Supreme Court ruling came down uh, and asked for a clarification about exactly how much they wanted to charge us uh, in light of the attorney fee or attorney time ruling. Uh, we still haven't heard back on that, and uh, we may have a few more Sunshine Law requests going out fairly shortly. Um, this has been unnecessarily difficult. Uh, from Springfield and from a few other school districts, which I'll talk about later as well. Um, but uh, no, I haven't gotten any clarification from Springfield specifically about uh, how much of that time they intend to have allocated to uh, lawyer time or attorney time, uh, because like you say, uh, that should be off the table now. And uh, hopefully we'll find out soon what their determination is about what, what amount uh, of that $2,000 they wanted to pay attorneys effectively for. Jacob? What's the next week look like for you? Watching out for the gas tax bill, keeping up with any federal infrastructure bill, and then uh, just more work on uh, transportation papers and energy papers. Great. All right. Susan, Patrick, Jacob, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.